we've been reading some foundational scriptures here in 2 Samuel. You know, we've seen that David desired to build the Lord a house, but the Lord said, you know, I'm going to build you a house. And I'd like us to look at Psalm 132 for another response from the Lord regarding his plan for the house that he is building. Now it says, if your sons if is the key imperative right there that we need to underline in our Bible. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. And I also want us to look in the bottom right, you'll see, let's look at 1 Chronicles 17, verse 11. And it shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, he's speaking to David, that I will set up your seed after you, who will be one of your sons. So it's saying he'll be in your lineage and I will establish his kingdom. And so I'd like to ask someone to read Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord build the house, the labor, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And this is so key. It's so important and applicable to us today as the body of Christ. Colossians 1.18 says this. It says, Christ is also the head of the church, which is the body, his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. This means that the pastor is not the head of the church. The head is Jesus Christ. You know, we're to follow him and him alone. You know, our pastor is a shepherd over the flock and they're accountable to the Lord. But if we try to build our ministries in our own strength or from maybe even a business perspective or mindset without prayer or involving Jesus, then from a kingdom perspective, our work is in vain. That's what the scriptures are telling us. Jesus told his disciples, I will build my church. And God is telling David, I'm going to build this house. For you and all the powers of hell, Jesus said, will not be able to conquer it. Amen. Amen. It may seem um, like those who are dishonest and, and manipulate that often that they always come out on top. But one thing I want to point out from some things that we've read that we'll kind of analyze from these stories in 2 Samuel is that we need to remember that although manipulators often get what they want, they really don't get what God would want for their lives. And the truth is that in Galatians 6, 7, we're told that the reality is we reap what we sow. And we see that here in 2 Samuel, you know, because though God is 100% fair and just and loving and honest, the Bible is 100% true, but the characters in the Bible are not. Um, and throughout scripture, you know, we get basically a look behind the scenes and we witness manipulation over and over again. And though David is a man after God's own heart, he falls mightily in, in you know, the adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and then plots um, and is responsible for the murder of Uri, Bathsheba's husband. And in this case, you know, he actually thought that he had done a good job even covering up his plot and his scheme until uh, Nathan gets a word from God, the prophet Nathan. 
And um, God in 2 Samuel 12 basically confronts uh, the king and Nathan told him a parable. And then after hearing it, you know, David was angered when he heard the story and he said the man Nathan was telling him about, he's going to die. So he was he was basically outraged at the story and thought that this man's deserving of death. And he also said he needed to restore um, everything that had basically been, you know, stolen or, or ruined fourfold because he had done this, you know, the story of the parable that he'd given and, and he had had no pity. And Nathan looked at King David and he said, you're the man. And, and so I want us to read through um, this particular part of, of the scripture. It says, then Nathan said to David, you're the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uri the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Amnon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uri the Hittite to be your wife. So this is the reason he's saying he's doing this because you despised me and you took someone else's wife. The Lord says, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. So the general population most likely never finds out the truth. But God knows, and, and though David was forgiven after repenting, you know, there were earthly consequences to his actions. And so I also want us to notice something about how David fell into sin. When David spotted Bathsheba on the rooftop in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2, it wasn't the casual glance that resulted in adultery. It was the next verse in chapter 11, verse 3. It says, so David sent and inquired about the woman, and that did him in. You know, there was a seed, which was the thought, and then he meditated on it, and then he acted on it. And James writes in chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown brings forth death. This temptation, this sexual temptation that is pre prevalent everywhere in society from, you know, ancient times to today and, and getting growing worse and worse by the day we see, but it has to be treated like the cancer that it is. You know, we shouldn't have a relaxed attitude about it just because it's happening all the time. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount he said to deal harshly with this particular uh, temptation. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 6, verse 18, he said to flee from sexual immorality, you know, because there are consequences to our sin and often the consequences affect many other people. God will forgive us and restore us, but we need to understand the seriousness of sin um, because the consequences often remain. And that's what we see here in an example given to us about David. The important point is that 
Our sin also gives great occasion for our enemies to look at us as hypocrites and ruin our testimony and blaspheme God as an, as a result. And that's even what the scripture said. It was a great opportunity for, for those that were watching David, this man of God that everyone knew that he was to blaspheme God. And so I'd also like to highlight that there is a great difference here between when King Saul sinned against the Lord and now King David. Saul was sorry, um, you know, that he had sinned, but David was actually repentant. I'm putting up a, a scripture I forgot to share with you on the screen, but it's the one who, who that explains that it was a blasp or giving occasion to the enemies of God to blaspheme God. You know, Saul had fa failed to carry out um, the commands of the Lord to destroy everything that he was told to destroy in a particular battle. He also made an unlawful sacrifice um, and even set up a monument to himself. And the result we know was that the kingdom was torn from him. But the difference between Saul and David, because here we are confronting this, these big sins of David, the difference was found for us in Psalm 51. Um, we read that David's heart was sorrowful and over his sin, and he had this prayer of repentance just broken before the Lord. That's the difference. Saul was just sorry that he got caught. He was sorry that he was going to look bad in front of everybody. There's a huge difference. And so um, we read also after the Psalm 51, you'll find in Psalm 32, um, recorded where David is uh, recording the joy he found in the forgiveness that he received. But I'd like to see if someone could read for us Psalm 51. It's 19 verses, but I feel that, you know, this is a great verse for us to just hear and let it come across the airwaves now because it really is an example of a brokenness before God and the heart, the humble and contrite heart that the Lord will not turn away. Could someone please read that? Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned. Have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward part, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face, hide your face from, from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. 
O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a, bro a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifice of righteousness. With, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering, then they shall offer bowls on your altar. Amen. Amen. So do we see the difference? I mean, there's such a difference between the heart of Saul and that we've, you know, we've already gone through that. And we didn't see anything like that. And now this brokenness before God. And that's what he wants when we mess up. You know, he is so merciful and loving and slow to anger. And he will um, cover our sins. Love covers a multitude of sins, you know, but we need to be broken over our sin. David's an example to us of how to reach that place of brokenness, to just be before the Lord in honesty, truly submitting to God, not just being sorry for being caught, but being sorry enough to stop, being sorry enough to stop what we're doing and get right before God and be willing to just sit, you know, truth, come to him with truth. We can't lie to the Lord. You know, he already searches and knows our hearts. Let's just get real before him. But let's um, move on in the story now to see the prophecy uh, to David about his first son conceived with Bathsheba. You know, David's son dies and David fasted and pleaded with God, but the child still died seven days later. And afterward, the Bible says that he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. And so now we're going to read 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 15 to 20. And, and I'm reading some of this through just so you all know, because I know we've read this, but I mean, there's just things that I think are so key as we just let this solidify in our heart and mind what God or what is happening here and what God is doing and who he is as a result and where we're going with this, with the, the characters that the Lord is using. And it says, and the Lord struck the child that Ur's wife bore to David and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day, it came to pass that the child died and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead for they said, indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house. And when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. So his servants were baffled. Servants said to him, what is this that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and you ate food. And he said, well, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now that he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. 
And so, you know, we see that what he's saying here when he says, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. He means that when he dies, he's going to meet him again. But until then, he's saying there's nothing more um, that can be done now that the child has died. We see that he was in anguish and fasting and pleading for God to spare his child. But when the child died, David accepts it. And then he goes to worship God, which shows his complete trust in the Lord, regardless of the outcome. But remember, the Lord had already decreed through the prophet Nathan that the child was going to die as a consequence of the sin. And we also need to understand that to the Lord, um, the child's death isn't death at all. You know, he'll just return back to the Lord. So it wasn't cruel to this innocent child because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 7.1, the day we die is the better than the day that we were born. And so we just can't comprehend death sometimes, but we, tr we have to trust God's word is true here. And Paul assured us this way about death. He said, so we are always confident, even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we're not at home with the Lord, for we live by believing and not by seeing. Yes, we are fully confident and we would, we would rather be away from these earthly bodies, for then we will be at home with the Lord. So whether we're here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him, for we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or the evil that we have done in this earthly body. So after David repented, he had consequences that remained, but God also restored him. You know, and this, the thing we need to see is that the Lord will take what the enemy intended for harm. And after that repentance, he'll turn it for good and for God's glory. David and Bathsheba, they had another son, and the Bible tells us that the Lord loved him. And that's the, the end scripture here. It says, then David comforted Bathsheba with his wife <coughs> and went into her, I'm sorry, went into her to, and lay with her. So she bore a son and called him his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him. And this son later became king over Israel. He was gifted with wisdom, and he's the son who built the first temple for God in Jerusalem. But I want you to remember how it was prophesied over David after his sin, that in addition to the baby dying as a result of his sin, God also said that the sword would never depart from his house. And God is faithful to his word. And the sword did not leave David's house from that day forward. In chapter 13, we read of David's lovesick son, Amnon, over his sister Tamar. He can't seem to live without her. His friend Jonadab, who's his cousin, comes up with a plan, and it's only known by the two of them, which leads to him raping his own sister. Absolutely detestable. But we read the end results in verse 15 of chapter 12. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hate, hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. And the truth is he lusted after her, which has everything to do with taking or getting rather than really loving her, which has everything to do with giving. He manipulated, but he wasn't satisfied. And the only one who knew the truth beside these three was Absalom, who um, Tamar had confided in when she ran into him after this had taken place. So he manipulates the situation himself, resulting in the murder of Amnon. And in Luke 16, verse 15, Jesus, when he was confronted by the Pharisees, he responds to them, you are those who justify yourselves 
before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Jesus lets them know that the world might be misled, but God is not. And he's aware of the truth, regardless of who is manipulating in the background in these situations. Absalom ends up killing Amnon. And then Absalom flees, but King David mourned for his son every day. The Bible tells us that Absalom was incredibly good looking. And I suppose he must have been exceptionally good looking for 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 25, to actually inscribe a note of it. Joab, who was the captain of King David's army, convinced King David to have Absalom return. But when he did, the king wouldn't see him um, face to face. And so... Um, it took two years until his father actually would see him face to face. And so he asked Joab to take him to the queen, to the king twice. Um, and then when he didn't, uh, he had set his fields on fire. But finally, when he does go before the king, um, he bowed low and King David and uh, King David kissed Absalom is what the scriptures tell us. But 40 years go by and then Absalom tries to actually overthrow David and become king himself. Absalom sleeps with his father's concubine in the sight of all Israel. And so I want you to remember here when we get to this part that the Lord had told uh, David in 2 Samuel through Nathan that he had done these things in secret, which was the affair he had had. Um, but the Lord said he was going to do it openly. So could someone read chapter 12, verses 11 and 12? Uh, this is what the Lord says, because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. So here it is, his own son is the one that's doing it. Absalom, like King Saul, he actually also set up a monument to himself. Um, the Bible explains he did it because he had no son in chapter 18, verse 18. But all the while, King David is now hiding from his son and fearful for his own life since his son Absalom is trying to overthrow him to be the king. But this is exactly what the Lord said that his future was going to be like. The sword would never leave his house. Then King David sent his friend Hushai to work for his son and to be a spy for David, sending back information to King David. So Hushai begins to give counsel and advise Absalom, contrary to the advice that Absalom was getting from Ahithophel. And 2 Samuel 17, um, verse 14 says, For the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. And this reminds me of another word in the Bible, touch not the Lord's anointed. Absalom was trying to overthrow not only his father, the king, but the king that God had himself established. And in chapter 18, it's Joab who finally kills Absalom, and then David returns to the kingdom. But in closing, we find in chapter 22, that King David praises God for deliverance from all his enemies. And in chapter 23, King David speaks his final words. And he's, he's really, he's now very old. And so he's about to die, although that doesn't happen in this particular book. Um, but there are a few verses from chapter 22 
as this book comes to a close, where David is offering praise to God, and I believe that it's beneficial for us to review these things that he said together. He said, with the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. With the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. You will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. So though David was truly blessed, his trials were intense and seemingly never ending. And at times they were brought on, you know, by his own poor choices, but often they were not. But throughout the process, David was being refined and he became the person referred to as the man after God's own heart. But he was constantly in challenges and struggles and trials and running and hiding and battles. It was a struggle. You know, the Bible tells us many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers us from them all. And it's the truth. And we see that through David, even though he had consequences for, for sin, and even though he was being refined through trials, God was with him in the middle of those trials, in the middle of the storm, and he was still delivering him in the midst of it all. And to me, there's much encouragement for us to find in that. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. James said in James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfected and complete, lacking nothing. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us far more exceeding an eternal weight of glory. And in case you don't fully comprehend the depths of the trials, which Paul referred to as light affliction, read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 22 to 29. You know, trials are not pleasant, but they are necessary. And they were necessary for David and they're necessary for you and me if we're going to become the people of God that God desires for us to become. And the Lord also kept his word to David and he has established his kingdom forever through his descendant, Jesus Christ, who will one day sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem in the city of God. As we continue reading through the Old Testament, I hope that you're able to see that God is creating a beautiful tapestry. And we are part of this, but, but our part is just a thread in the much bigger picture. And I believe as we see his plans unfolding, we should ask, ask ourselves if we're truly willing to serve him and be a part of this beautiful design and not necessarily serve him in the way that we choose to serve him, but to seek him for what he's calling us to do, what he's asking of us when we see and he reveals his heart to us, are we lining up with that? And I say this because scriptures show us that we can elevate ourselves to believe that we're the main part of this temple or tapestry. 
And this is why Paul was giving such a stern reminder um, or reprimand essentially to Gentiles in Romans 11, making sure that we understood that the branches are not supported uh, or aren't supporting the roots, but it's vice versa. The roots are supporting the branches. And because though we are able to be used by God in service to him, we need to come to understand that this life is not about us. It's about him. That is really important for us to get as the church. Um, Francis Chan, he actually gave an illustration that I'd like to share with you um, in his book called Crazy Love. And this is what he wrote. He said, suppose you are an extra in an upcoming movie. You'll probably scrutinize that one scene where hundreds of people are milling around just waiting for that two-fifths of a second when you can see the back of your head. Maybe your mom and your closest friends get excited about the two-fifths of a second with you, maybe. But no one else will realize that it's you. Even if you tell them, they won't care. Let's take it a step further. What if you rent out the theater on opening night and you invite all your friends and family to come and see the new movie about you? People will say, you're an idiot. How could you think this movie is about you? Well, many Christians are even more delusional than the person I've been describing. So many of us think and live like the movie of life is all about us from start to finish. The movie is obviously about God. He is the main character. How is it possible that we live as though it is about us? Our scenes in the movie, our brief lives, fall somewhere between the time Jesus ascends into heaven in Acts and when we all worship God on his throne in heaven in Revelation. We have only our two-fifths of a second long scene to live. He said, this is Francis Chan's quote still. And he says, I don't know about you, but I want my two-fifths of a second to be all about making much of God. Amen to that. And so in closing here, we can study the stories of Samuel and learn lessons from the history and compare ourselves with Saul or David. But the real reason to read the book is to learn, as Pastor Sylvia told us last week, it's about seeing God. It's about seeing the character of God. And we also need to see the covenant being restated when God tells David how he will treat his son, that he will discipline him, but never cease to love him. And that David's house and kingdom, are, that they're going to endure forever before him. That he will establish the throne of David and that there will always be a descendant of David on the throne. And it was from that moment on for Israel that the descendants of David's always carefully kept records of their family tree. They were wondering if their son might be the son of David mentioned in the covenant. And then a thousand years later, the promise was kept when Jesus was born to a humble couple who were in that royal line. In the fulfillment of the covenant, we see that God's promise was uh, has a wider implication as uh, the king of David's throne rules over the Jews and Gentiles who make up his church. And this is what we're coming into. We're coming into the fullness, his bride, which is Jew and Gentile church coming together, being glorified in Christ as we come to the end of the age. I'm sure you've seen the scripture that's up on the screen. What other nation on earth is like your people, Israel? What other nation, O oh God, have you redeemed from slavery to be your own people? You made a great name for yourself when you redeemed your people from Egypt. You performed awesome miracles and drove out the nations that stood in their way. You chose Israel to be your very own people forever. And you, O oh Lord, became their God. 
So I want to just ask now what the Lord has shown you about himself, his heart, or his plans from this week's reading in 2 Samuel. For me, again, as you said earlier, every time we read the scripture and we read it as if we know nothing, God reveals himself in greater and mightier ways. I'm always amazed at the compassion and the love of God. And, you know, reading that, oftentimes we can look and say, you know, David committed murder, you know, adultery and a whole lot of other stuff. And when I look at Saul, Saul disobeyed some things, but yet we would say that the punishment may appear to be kind of a little off. You know, maybe that's just me. So let me speak to me. But the bottom line is this, and I believe that you summed it up. And again, seeing it, it's the matter of the heart. When we begin in 1 Samuel and uh, David is sending Samuel, I mean, I'm sorry, God sends Samuel to anoint David. The profound thing that he says is that man looks at the outer, I look at the heart. Where am I going in this? Again, God is showing me the demonstration of the heart of man, and he responds to that heart. He's looking for that uh, rebellion. I mean, he's looking for that repentance, because literally it's rebellion that causes us to do what we're doing. And so when we repent, then God's heart is moved because our heart is moved in understanding like David did when David said, it's you and you alone that I have sinned against. That understanding that it's about a relationship with yourself, myself, and God. And God desires to have a heart-to-heart relationship with us. He did not give the word and the laws, and I would say the commandments, just so that he could have some robot-like people. But what God was seeking was connecting heart-to-heart. And when my heart connects with his, then it causes me to see things differently because I see them from God's perspective. And then the other thing that I see that is so um, prominent that we need to understand because oftentimes we believe that when I repent, it wipes away all the consequences. When we see this, God is clearly showing that, mm -mm, you repent, I'll forgive you, but there are still consequences of your actions. And in this case, we need to understand, I do, that my decisions and my choices can and they do affect other people. God told David that the sword would not leave his house. And it did not. And we see it over and over again. Uh, You know, I know we haven't got there yet, but we continue to see it. What am I going? What I see is that he's the God of his word. Amen. And we should jump and shout because he's the God of his word. Oftentimes we jump and shout because he's the God of his word and he promised the promises. But he's the God of his word in everything that he says. And that's how we know that he's reliable, he's dependable, he's trustworthy. I don't know about you, but I would not want a one-sided God. I wouldn't. I I love the God that is uh, all things. He brings the blessing, but he also, when correct,
correction and discipline is necessary, he brings it. And it comes from the same context. God blesses because he loves. He corrects because he loves. His righteous judgment flow out of love. So what did I see over and over again? His love, his love, his love. I saw his holiness and I see that he is no respecter person. God loved David, but David's actions were not pleasing. And therefore they brought forth consequences. And out of his love, God delivered those consequences. But he also gave him a promise that his seed, he didn't say seeds, but seed. And that's Jesus Christ. Amen, Pastor Sylvia. Um, I love what you were saying. The scripture you quoted about to the faithful, God shows himself faithful to the merciful. He shows himself merciful um, to the shrewd or to the devious. He shows himself to be shrewd. Just think it's interesting idea, like how we operate, how we treat others is how God is going to treat us. Um, and so to the point, even where Jesus says, um, if you forgive others, it'll be forgiven you. But if you don't forgive others their sins against you, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. Um, and so this is, I think, worth thinking about because I think it's a pretty specific reaping and sowing, um, you know, as we apply some principles from David's life here. Um, on the negative side, um, you just look at what he did with Bathsheba. Um, he, he manipulates her. Uh, he uses his, his power and his position to get what he wanted. He was operating in lust, took something from her, murders her husband. And then you look at what happens with Amnon and Tamar. Um, it's the same. It's literally the exact same sin. Uh, Amnon uses his power and uses his position and he manipulates her and he takes something from David's own own flesh and blood. And so you can just see the, the devastating consequences of generational sin. And we've already talked about the sword not leaving David's house, but I just keep coming back to, you know, David is harsh with Joab when Joab kills Abner. And yet David releases Joab as the murderer to kill Uriah. And then he begs the troops when it comes to Absalom, don't kill my son. But yet it's Joab again that murders. And so Joab has been consistent uh, throughout all of his, he's a murderer through and through. Uh, he's he's a, a hothead. And on it's David that's showed, displaying some hypocrisy. And that own hypocrisy comes back into his own house as Joab, who is faithless, murders Absalom. But what a, uh, you know, coming back to the scripture that you shared to the faithful, God shows himself faithful. To the merciful, God shows himself mercy. And you can see on the positive side with David, David has been really kind and sown out a lot of generosity too. And you see that coming back to him as he's going on his exile out from Absalom. He meets, uh, I think the, the, the man's name is Gedai, a Gentile general who had come to live in Israel and then decided to go into exile with David. And David's like, no, just Go on back, you know, this isn't, I'm, I'm no longer king. You don't want to be around with me anymore. And he says, no, he actually swears loyalty to David as a Gentile king. So then David says, okay, you go ahead and take a third of my army then. Um, and so David is operating in generosity too. And you can see 
the reaping and sowing effect in both the positive and the negative in his life, I think, in some of these stories. So just throwing that out there. I have a question um, about, especially about that that one section when David is fleeing, um, he, he, I don't even know if he's fleeing, is he fleeing uh, Hebron? Is he fleeing Jerusalem? Um, but he's leaving. And when he talks to that same guy, <laughs> um, he says, go back to the king. So if David was the king and he knew he was the anointed one, why did he leave? Jed, you want to take that one? Sure. I, I think, I believe it actually, David actually says, he, he's actually open to the idea that God may actually be done with him as king. And so he's, he's reading the circumstances and saying, okay, Absalom is taking the throne. Um, he's coming after what, I, what I'm not going to kill my son. And so I can, I can stay and fight or I can, I can walk away. David is going to walk away and he knows he's guilty. And so he actually says, you know, just remember uh, Shimei comes out and is cursing him um, as one of the Benjaminites and is, you know, mocking David. And David says, you know, Abishai is going to go over there and kill him. And he says, no, don't, don't kill him. The Lord is, the Lord may be causing him to do this. The Lord may be speaking through Shimei and cursing me right now. Let's just let it play out. And so David in his humility and in his repentance is considering that perhaps he is not to be king anymore and that this is the will of God is that Absalom comes to power now and he's at least willing to consider that thought which is such a contrast to Saul right Saul was never willing to let go of the crown no matter what he would he murdered priests he murdered like 70 priests remember I mean he for just giving David bread uh, you know, so Saul was jealous, insecure, always willing to murder and 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 keep what he thought was his identity, which was he's the king. He's got to be the man. David's willing to lay down position for love. He loved Absalom, wasn't going to kill his son. And so I think at that point, to answer your question, I think he is, you know, he's not clear what the Lord is doing yet in the situation. He's, God has not yet made it clear that he's not finished with David as king. And I think David's honestly telling the general there, you know what, Absalom's on the throne now, you should go, in your best interest, it would be for you to go and, and make peace with Absalom and, and, and be in Jerusalem with him. Let me add a few points onto that too, because I agree with what you said. And just also in that exchange with Saul's descendant, David makes a very, uh, very great point. He says, and if not, then perhaps God will see my suffering and he will return. He'll bring me back. When we look at David, we can see that David, he made a mistake and they were, you know, huge ones. But what he never stopped doing was he never stopped surrendering his life to God and understanding that even in adversity and hard times, God was still God and God was still in control. It is what made and enabled him instead of, because the same ones wanted to take out Saul uh, on the encounters when uh, he would be in the place where Saul was. And David would say, 
no, you know, in essence, God is in control. And when God decides that Saul's last days are his last days, God will either take him out, he'll die in battle, but I'm not going to do it. Same way it is when this now occurs and he hears, he said, let me get out of there because he remembered his sins. He remembered that my life belongs to the Lord and whatever he chooses to do with my life, he has a right to choose. And so I'm going to honor God in everything. Yes, he loved his son, but he also loved the God who had been faithful to him in every situation, in every circumstance. And he was willing to allow God to be God. And even from that perspective that if it's God's will, God will bring me back. And if he sees my misery, he'll bring me back sooner. I'm not going to take things into my own hand. David loved the people and those that were with him to get him out to safety. But again, he also understood that if God chose to raise up, because he's the one who appoints leaders, he is also the one that removes them. And so if this is what God is doing, again, let God be God. And I'm going to take my place on the sidelines and wait and see what God is doing. Well, and it really comes down to having a foundation in our hearts to believing that God is good believing that because when we truly believe God, that he's trustworthy, that he is good, that his word is true. And if he says that he'll turn all things for good, you know, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, even if it looks bad, I know I can trust that. So even when it's bad, I can be surrendered to the Lord and say, it's in the Lord's hands. As long as I'm submitted to him, he's going to work it out and I can have peace through those storms. You know, and even um, Paul in, uh, I believe it is, what is this verse? Philippians. Uh, he talks about he'd learned to be content in all um, circumstances, you know, which really means I, I'm submitted to God in all circumstances, whether I have plenty or whether I'm in want. You know, whether a storm comes and I'm shipwrecked or whether I'm in the prison, you know, if I'm whatever circumstance I'm in, I'm content in that because he knew God is in control, you know, that he was fully submitted to the Lord. And again, I, uh, I want to emphasize submission leads to surrender and surrender is a matter of the heart. I know that God is good. I know as uh, Jet and Christy, you read the scripture, he shows himself faithful to the faithful. And faithfulness is not based on mistake free because we all make mistakes. We all do some things. But are you faithful to repent? Are you faithful to return? Are you faithful to come back to God and admit, God, I messed this thing up. I am asking you to forgive me. I trust you, you know, because David never disputed the consequences. 
He didn't say, oh, that's not fair. I've asked for forgiveness. Why won't you remove the sword? What's really going on? He didn't address that. What he addressed was understanding that he had made a mistake. He had failed, but God is never wrong and God has never made a mistake. He's justified in what he's doing and taking it out of the book of Job. Job said when his wife said, curse God and die, he said, now you're talking like those fools women. Are we to accept the good of God and not the other? God is. When we make mistakes, he is well-rounded and there is correction, there's reproof, there's consequences. But I believe part of our challenge is now we live in a society where God is one-sided. He absolutely is love, but he's also righteous and his righteousness requires judgment and he will bring forth his righteous judgment. And here's the point. None of us will ever be able to stand before God and say, you were not fair. You made a mistake. You were wrong. It's absolutely not going to happen because he has never made a mistake. He never will. And we need to surrender. In Romans 12 and 1, it says, present your body as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. It is your reasonable service. It's your reasonable worship. Somewhere along the line, David had reached that point and coming back to God. Maybe it was the seven days when he was fasting and praying because that's another interesting thing he says. He said, when the child was alive, who would have known that perhaps God would change his mind? But now that the child is gone, why should I continue to fast? Why should I continue to, you know, weep and mourn and all of those things? Because he can't come. God's made the decision. He's not coming back to me, but I can go to him. So let me get myself back together and start living for God. And whatever God chooses to do, it is well in my eyes. Amen. 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 What was a blessing to me um, on this, in Second Samuel, one of the things that I've always tried to focus on, I mean, I, I think I said this last week, was finding out why God said David was a man after his own, his own heart. Well, there was one very short thing that I saw here when, when Prophet Nathan came to, to, to uh, David. Uh, Prophet Nathan narrated the story uh, of, of someone who committed injustice without uh, um, uh, mentioning the culprit. And I think God wanted to see how David would react to injustice and to, to, for, for God to see that David hated injustice. I think that was one beautiful thing too. Um, um, I mean, I, I, know that, I know that our God is a just God and anyone who loves him will hate injustice. You know, if you love God, you must hate sin. Amen. So God saw that in David. God saw that David hated injustice. And I think it put David in a place where when God finally revealed that he was the one who committed injustice, um, another, another quality of David that, you know, we've talked about that God really loved when he, when he realized that David committed that injustice was how humble he was and how willing he was to receive God's punishment, even though he pleaded for mercy. You know, so I think that's one thing about us um, we should really uh, pay attention to. Uh, I've seen many people in life that, you know, 
ask, why did God do this to me? Or why did God do this and do that? And like Pastor Sylvia has alluded, you know, God, God is a righteous God and his righteous demands judgment. And so if we cannot see our sin, we can easily fall, you know, in the in, 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 the, in the area of blaming God for, for performing his justice. And so um, uh, when I see David, I see someone who uh, would admit to his fault, no matter how grave it is, no matter how, uh, uh, no matter how how serious it is, and 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 humbly receive God's punishment while pleading for mercy. And I think that's a character we should all have, instead of uh, blaming God for what's happening to us. Because I know Scripture says we have all come short of His glory, and we have all sinned against Him. Amen. Amen. That's so good, Terrence. It just uh, brought up in my um, mind Psalm seven. Um, starting in verse 10, God is my shield, saving those whose hearts are true and right. God is an honest judge. He is angry with the wicked every day. If a person does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. He will prepare his deadly weapons and shoot his flaming arrows. That's hard for a lot of people to process that God, that this is said about God. You know, because we, we think God is love and God is love. But before the Bible says God is love, it says God is light that there he's pure he's holy he's righteous so in in that you know he's merciful in all these things that he's waiting this is why the new testament tells us the reason why he's delaying his return so that none will perish you know he's saying he 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 um tarries so that none will perish he's giving people an opportunity to repent but if we don't repent we're going to be without excuse because god is truly angry at the wicked every day that doesn't mean he doesn't love the person he just hates their wickedness hates it detests it you know and so we've got to turn from these things we just have to remember wholeheartedly that god did not save us to sin he saved us from it so we just need to stay on the path of righteousness here. Amen. Anyone else? Yeah, that's uh, that's been my walk with the Lord. It, I had a season of three years where I was silent, but it was God pruning me. I did. I couldn't speak. I just wanted to eat His Word and listen, and um, it was a beautiful, hard time. And then after that, what came after that was a stronger relationship with him. And uh, then, you know, I went into a trial where I was very sick. And when I got sick, I said, I proclaimed God's words. And I said, Jesus, if this is the enemy, then I, you know, no weapon that's formed against me shall prosper. And I claimed his promises. But I said, but Lord Jesus, if this is your discipline, then I accept it. And I love you. I'm not mad at you. I love you. I ask for mercy, but I will try to endure and be patient. And so those were all the things that were going through my head and things that he was teaching me. And so I just feel like in my own testimony, it just comes down to abiding in him, really abiding in him. And daily. I mean, we need our daily bread like this, but to me, it's like every hour, uh, feels like every minute, but it's just, you know, that's just been my journey with the Lord. And I'm still, um, learning the, the fullness of who he is. And, 
And one thing that I do say all the time is thank you, Jesus, for a heart of repentance. I'm so grateful for that. Grateful for a heart of repentance. And I think, Chantel, your testimony, along with David's testimony, it's an example of loving the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Because when we really, and that's the greatest commandment, you know, so when we're really doing that, we're, we're loving him in spite of ourselves. We're just loving him, knowing that he's, it's okay. We trust him. We trust ourselves with him, that um, we're going to allow him. We're going to allow him to, to do what he needs to do with us because we're presenting ourselves to him um, to mold, to shape, to correct, knowing that he's God. He's God and he's, tr- he's right, he's true, and he's trustworthy. Anyone else want to share what you've um, learned this week or seen this week in Second Samuel? Thoughts that are on your heart? You know, I would like to, as I know they're thinking and they're just right at clicking and unmuting themselves. So as you're doing that, also want us to remember this. I believe that uh, in that relationship with the Lord and when we love him with all of our heart, soul, mind and might, he begins to remove and take away the untruths and replace them with the truth. God is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. And many of us, and I'm saying many, because some, you may have always received the spiritual truth of the doctrine, but many of us have not. And in not receiving that, it has skewed our understanding of the truth of God's word. And oftentimes it can be seen as correction, correction, reproof, and God's discipline is unloving and not kind. But that is not the truth. The most loving thing that God can do and we can do for someone else is when they are in error, when they are believing something that is not true, to bring forth that truth so that it can bring about a change in heart, in action, in behavior, in thoughts, in all of that. Because we don't know what we don't know. And the word of God, which is the truth, brings that to us. And so then we can begin to understand that he corrects us because he loves us. He said that if he does not do so, we are none of his. I don't know about you. But I don't want to stand before God and he gave me easy street. And then he says, depart from me, you work of iniquity. I never knew you. And then I think I'm in one place when actually in error, I'm somewhere else. I love the Lord because he corrects me. And I love the Lord because he made me so he knows. Now, I'm just going to say, there may be somewhere he can say, you know, sweetly, no, don't do that. And you respond. But he made me and know he got to say, look, look now. Mm-mm. You're headed down the wrong path. Now, I've tried to tell you that. You didn't get it the first three times. So now let me help you with that. I love him because he relates to us in truth, but he knows us and he knows what needs to be done. 
The, the worst thing I think any parent can do is to see your child in complete error and say nothing. Lovingly, we ought to do so. And he is the greatest and the most magnificent father ever. And if we, being evil, know how to give good things to our children, how much more so? We need to really understand that he disciplines and he corrects those that he loves. And that is the ultimate thing in love. I remember when my daughter was growing up, you know, and she got upset with me. And I told her, I said, look, I'm all right with you getting upset with me. So when you turn 18, you'll know what right looks like and you'll have some choices. So go ahead and get mad, baby, because I'm still going to keep telling you what right looks like. I see in the scripture, that's what God is doing. And I am so grateful that God tells me what is right according to him so that he can bring the correction because that's the greatest love ever. You are so right, Pastor Sylvia. I mean, I see two things. I see one that as ambassadors of Christ, under having understanding as the Holy Spirit has revealed truths to us, for us to not share those truths is truly like having medicine for someone who's got a terminal disease and just not be willing to give them any, you know, because we don't want to offend them somehow by giving them the medicine. You know, it's just not right to, to withhold those things. And God has called for us to do it because we truly are watchmen. When we've been given something of God, we are meant to give it back. The Bible says to whom much is given, much is required. You know, and when we have an understanding of the truth and we don't do what we're supposed to do with it, it's sin. You know, and not only that, even Paul said in his word, he said, I have not failed to proclaim to you the whole, the whole gospel, the full gospel, not just parts of the gospel in certain chapters and books and verses. He said, I've delivered it to you across the board, all of it. And if we look into what, everything that Paul said, it included lots of things that get overlooked these days, like Israel's part in the full gospel and how the Jews you know, uh, that it was to the Jew first and that we have a um, an obligation to realize that they're the root of our salvation. They are the root. Um, we are the branches that we have been grafted in. There's so much there. But he said, I didn't fail to deliver to you the full counsel of God. And basically he was saying, because your blood's going to be on your own heads, because that, that's what frees us as ambassadors of Christ, that when God has put people in our lives that need to hear the truth and we're not willing to share it with them, I believe there is a responsibility that's accounted to us for not being willing to share truth with someone. I believe that's part of what it means when it says, to whom much is given, much is required. We have understanding, but we're not willing to impart it. It's, it's you know, we're watchmen for the Lord. We're ambassadors of Christ. We're supposed to be working towards helping people reconcile themselves to the Lord, not just having a happy life or your best life now. Our best life now isn't going to happen here. Our best life is going to happen in eternity. You know, there's nothing in scripture that says we're called to happiness. The scriptures say we're called to holiness, you know, and it says we're supposed to die to ourselves daily. So that doesn't line up with best life now. It just really doesn't. You know, we're really just supposed to continue to pursue these things that Jesus said um, we're pursuing the kingdom, to set our mind on things above, not things below. Because whoever makes themselves a friend of the world is an enemy of God. You know, so I mean, it's like these words that we read, as we read them and go through these scriptures, I just pray with all my heart that myself personally, that I can obtain these things internally, that they aren't just coming out of my mouth 
but that I'm actually able to allow them to truly sink into my heart. You know, David said that I, I um, have planted your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. That's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to be a guard for us, you know, that we're doing something. That's how we apply it. We're planting it so that it's springing forth something when the time is right, when, when it's needed, that it produces righteousness in us. And uh, anyone else have something to share as we continue through? This is awesome because there's so many good points that are being brought out through different voices that the Lord is using to, to share here at the table. So I just want to welcome anybody else who, who has something to say and share about what you've read. So I wanted to mention something that really the Lord revealed to me um, that I whenever I read this story, I overlooked was that how David didn't get offended. Do you know that was a big secret that Nathan came and told him, hey, I found out you murdered somebody. And, um, and how, you know, if somebody finds out a secret you've done, I don't know, I'm talking to myself. Um, or even when you see like, movies or something like that or you hear stories how something they can turn against you for revealing something like that especially if you're a king you mm -hmm. could have easily killed Nathan and shut him up and like try to continue to cover this thing up but um and how David received the truth and he went to God with it mm -hmm. and he didn't try to do a lot more damage or try to deny it or try to accuse Nathan or you know I just I just said wow God help me to receive the truth when you come and tell me the truth you know that's a good point Olive because you know there are people today that God will speak through to bring corrections to other brothers and sisters and you're right and sometimes people can um, be offended by hearing that word from the Lord that somebody might have needed to hear. Um, I would imagine that for David, he probably um, would would have been astounded that Nathan knew um, and likely would have thought there's no way he could have known but God um, revealed this to him. So I would imagine it's that reverence that he had. But but it's, it's a great point that you're making because um, we do need to be willing to receive the correction. You know, because I believe when God sends a brother or sister to correct us, I believe when the heart is pure about bringing that correction, um, that will be evident as well, you know, that it will be discernible that they're delivering something in love because they care, you know, and just as Pastor Sylvia said, it's the most loving thing someone can do. The Bible says that when you turn a, a brother or sister from their error in their sinning, that you save a soul from death, you know, so it's truly an important thing for us to have the courage to say some, say things sometimes, not necessarily to, um, make it our mission to go about casting aspersions at people and looking for all the wrongdoings and pointing them out to, to people. But I believe it's when the Holy Spirit reveals something to you and convicts you to say something that it's time to speak up about it. No, even when we look at that story, look at this. Nathan did, Nathan did not come into the king with both barrels blasting. He didn't. 
He came in, God gave him a story and a method to do because he knew David's heart. And as Terrence said earlier, David uh, did not like or appreciate injustice at any level. So hearing that story sparked some things in him and he had to respond. And then I will tell you the other thing is that maybe, you know, the mass majority of the Israelites didn't know, but the palace knew. Amen. And just as people can do math now, they're able to do it then. And again, uh, but she waited for the morning period to be, and then she showed up and David marries her. They could add and subtract and know when the child was born. The child was born that whether that child came nine months to the day or two months early. I mean, come on now. So there was a there was a sense and awareness and people were walking around as if they didn't know. And God had to deal with that. And that's what he's saying is that you brought shame to me. Why? Because they had seen God deliver David from the hand of Saul. They had seen him take him from his master's armor bearer, from the one that played the harp so that he could calm down all of that, hiding in caves to making him the king of all the land. And that is why God says, I gave you your master's wives and home. And if that wasn't enough for you, if you'd asked me for more, I would have given you even more. God saw this because again, and that's what we have to know that it's not just about our reputation. It's not just about we did something wrong. When we project Christ and it's blatant because people can add, subtract. They know sin as compared to what's not sin. They know what the world is doing and you say I'm a Christian but you're acting just like the rest of the world. It is not you that you're bringing shame and disgrace on. It's the very name and the image of God. And we need to make that right. And David understood all, understood that. How do we also know that? Ahithophel was David's number one counselor. Do you know why he turned against David and went to Absalom? Because Bathsheba was in his family. And when David says he didn't know who she was, no one moves beside the king and you not know who they are. He was able because she was close enough for him to look out and to see her. They all knew. That's why they said that is Uriah's or Uriah's, however you want to say it, his wife. He knew she was not a stranger. He was the king. Nobody moves into the king's house and near the king. He was a part of David's great army and he was in that army more than a day. But lust and wanting to do what he should not do preceded his wisdom, his knowledge, even his love for God. And he did the wrong thing. And he brought shame, not just on God, which is the primary thing, but I hit the field. That was his family. Bathsheba was uh, in his lineage. So that's why. So all of these things are consequences of our action that was contrary to what God had said, 
what God had said not to do, and David did it anyway. And there were consequences. Amen. The people knew it had to be justified. Uh, and God was saying, there's an elephant in the room. Let's not pretend there's no elephant. Let's address the elephant, you and, you and I. And when they see you repent, they will know you're, not, you're no longer being a hypocrite. Because again, the baby was born and the child is birthed. He did not die in the womb. The child was alive and well before God sends Nathan and the consequences come. Just because time goes by, it doesn't mean that we've gotten away from it. Gotten away with it and God isn't seeing. I believe God gives us every opportunity to repent on our own and to make it right. And if we don't, then he will cause actions and consequences to try to save you, not to shame us, but to save us because he knows our heart and he's looking for that repentive heart, that, that spirit. We cannot repent without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and brings forth genuine repentance. That's the difference between David and Saul. Saul never repented. He was sorry, as Krista said, he got caught and he looked bad before the people. David genuinely repented and he had a heart for what was right and what was wrong. And he received it because he knew Nathan, uh-oh, you're talking to me and you're causing me to understand this is more than just about me. This is how I've made God look before the people. And I'm ashamed of that. We haven't talked about it yet, but, uh, you know, David ends up, um, well, it's interesting because it started the, the, the story of taking the census and the plague that comes on Israel because of the census starts with a difficult passage of scripture, in my opinion, where it says the Lord was angry with Israel and caused David to take a census. Um, that's that one little phrase saying quite a bit to us, the Lord is angry. Uh, you know, the Lord has emotions and, you know, something has angered the Lord in Israel doesn't say specifically what it is. It just says that he's angry and that he caused David to take the census. So I'm not going to, you know, say, uh, you know, I guess where the Bible's silent, I'm not going to make a comment where the Bible's pretty blatant. I think it speaks for itself. When the Bible says God caused David to take the census, I just think it means what it says. Mm -hmm. God led David and influenced David to make a decision in order for some discipline to come into Israel's uh, experience at this sure. point. Can I add so, something there? Is that sorry? Can I interject just one thing there? I just wanted to mention, that's an interesting point, because you're right, it's a challenging place of scripture. And, um, you know, and then we know that First Chronicles, speaking of that same account, says it another way. And it says, now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. And so to me, I think that what we're seeing is that basically Satan thinks he's in control but he's basically a pawn in God's hand for, like you said, God is just allowing, um, you know, what the enemy's going to do to work for what God's plans are, you know, which is kind of how it works in a, a lot of situations. The things that the enemy's going to do to cause harm, God's going to allow that to be a pawn and turn it for what his plans are. 
I just wanted to say that because I don't, I don't want us to, to get in a place where we would think um, that God uh, is evil and he's not, he's not evil. And some people I think can get stuck there when on a passage like that um, to see that God caused him to sin, basically caused him to do it. When but that's really such to, an important place yeah. to actually have a conversation. Yeah. It because is. God, God is a judge. And so to, to talk through, if someone's like, Hey, well, God's killing people, you know, who are we? We have to remember Paul Romans nine, God's the potter. Human beings are the clay. And Paul says, you're the clay. You can't, you can't really judge the potter, what he's doing. He can do what he wants with his clay. He he's created everything. He can do whatever he wants with his creation because he's sovereign. And so I think for us, when we want to sit in the judge's seat, that, that seat really is God's seat. I heard Mike Bickle say one time that this was back in, I guess, 2005 at a One Thing Leadership Conference. And it was right after Katrina had happened. Um, and we were reeling as a country from the hurricane. And a young man stood up and said, you know, I'm, I'm a youth minister and my, my youth group is struggling with the idea that this could be God's judgment. And Mike just stood up and said, and I thought it was really wise and brilliant. He said, you know, well, the young man asked, what should I tell my youth group? And he said, look, God kills people. God kills a lot of people uh, in the Bible. And he said, I just would have them read the Bible, just like we're doing right here, because it brings us face to face with the fact that we are, we're the create, we're the creation. We're not the creator. God is a righteous judge. And if he is going to, whether he uses Satan uh, as a pawn, which I, I think he is doing in this scenario, like you, like you highlighted, Krista, well, he's he's going to bring about his purposes. Um, when the when the children of Israel are in the the wilderness, God is judging them at different points, and there's people that are are dying because of those judgments. And I think it's a mistake for us to judge God according to our standards of what we think is good, fair, righteous, evil. I think we have to deal with our desire to basically eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to think that we know as finite, fallible human beings what is good and what is evil. I think that's an error in all of us that's been there since the garden. And it's passages like this that bring us up against a very uncomfortable truth, which is there is a God, he is a righteous judge, and he will hold all his creation to account and so there should be a righteous fear that begins to emanate from us of like, wow, my life is not my own. The next breath I take, not my own. I don't get to decide if my hair is black or white. You know, I don't get to decide if I wake up in the morning. Our lives are in God's hands. And so the story of the census, I think, is showing us again with David, you know, God is using a situation. He's dealing with some things in Israel. David takes the census uh, and God sends the prophet to him and says, okay, here's what's going to happen. Either you'll have three years of famine, three months of running from your enemies, or three days of an intense plague. And David, true to his character, says, I'm just going to fall in the hands of the Lord. Um, he chooses the plague. So 70,000 die uh, here in the story. David rises up because he is an intercessor. He is a worshiper. And he goes to intercede. There's the angel of death is in Jerusalem, and God actually tells the angel to relent and pause. And, and there's kind of this meeting at Arun, the threshing floor of Aruna. And David approaches this man, 
the, Lord, the word of the Lord comes that it needs to be a sacrifice needs to be made. So David's going to go and acquire the threshing floor of Aruna. Uh, and the man's just going to give David everything. Here's the oxen. Here's the, here's the, you can have it all. You're the king. Do with it what you want. David makes a really incredible statement. He says, I'm going to pay you full price for it because I will not uh, offer a sacrifice to the Lord that cost me nothing. And so he's, he's putting skin in the game. Any sacrifice, he, he wants to feel it as uh, a man, as, as a son of the, of, of the Lord. He wants to feel the pain of that sacrifice and make it real and genuine. And so they do make that, uh, that sacrifice. The plague is stopped. And this ends up being the site where the temple will be built, is this, this threshing floor which I think is really interesting. David begins to amass materials. He knows the Lord has told him, you won't be the one to build it for me. Your hands are too, too much blood on your hands, but your son Solomon is going to build this for me. So David begins to amass supply material, um, costly uh, stones in order to uh, help Solomon with the building project. But it is right there out of this story that the, the ground of the temple, so to speak, is acquired um, by David and his family for the future building project. Amen. Amen. So we've got a lot of foundation below us as we've come through the Bible so far. Here we are ending 2 Samuel. And next week, I believe we are heading into more Psalms and even Kings. Um, and so I'd like to, as we bring um, our meeting to a close, just thank all of you for continuing to come and to seek the Lord with all of your heart and to fellowship together with other believers around the globe. Because, you know, the word of the Lord tells us, don't forsake the assembling together of yourselves all the more that you see the day approaching. And we know the day is approaching. And so I see Arnett, Arnetta's beautiful face, who I have journeyed to Israel with in the past and um, love her dearly. And I wanted to see Arnetta, if you would mind closing us out in prayer tonight. Almighty and all wise God, our most holy and precious Father. God, we just thank you tonight for your goodness and we thank you for your mercy. God, we thank you for the time that has been set. God, we thank you for your word that was opened up to us tonight. We thank you for the discussions, God, and we thank you for, for Krista and, and Jed and, oh my gosh, I just lost her name, but God, you know who I'm talking about. God, That's and we Sylvia. thank you for all of those that are on. Sylvia, yes, thank you, Father, for Sylvia. We just bless her tonight, God. We thank you for all of those that are on the call tonight. And God, and we pray that you will continue to bless, bless us all, Father, that you will continue to speak to us and open your word up to us. And God, and I pray that we will be your examples, God, because we know that there are people that don't know you and folks that won't even think of you, God. But if through our lives, God, if we walk according to your word, that, they, that we will be examples of you, Father, and that they will be drawn closer to you. Help us, God, to show forth love and kindness. Help us to show forth love, Lord, not only to our family and friends, but God, to those that we don't know and to those that seem to be unlovable. Help us, God, to show forth genuine love and genuine kindness. God, and I pray that you will continue to bless us in your word. And we thank you, God, for, the, for all that you're going to reveal to us through your word. And I pray your, your blessings upon all of us and that we'll always lend an ear 
to hear what you would have to say to us individually. And God, and I know that you have designed all of us uniquely. You all, you gave us all a purpose and you have a plan for us. Help us to fulfill your plan and your purpose for our lives. Again, I thank you, Father, for all that you do for us in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Glory unto the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. And thank you. Shalom to everyone. God bless you. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next Monday. Bless y'all. Bless it. Bye-bye.